Hello, and welcome to the Tea Leaves podcast, where our goal is to bring Asia to you through conversations with the people whose lives and work are shaping the Indo-Pacific region. That's the whole reason I wanted to write my book, because I was so surprised that not only had Kim Jong-un managed to survive, but practically thriving there in Pyongyang. It's all about him staying in power and his family staying in power in North Korea. This is his single motivating factor, and everything he does is geared around this. The whole idea of lips and teeth is very, very outdated now, but but there's certainly no love lost whatsoever between Xi Jinping and Kim Jong-un. I'm Rexon Yu, managing partner at the Asia Group. And I'm Sharon anchor for Bloomberg TV's Daybreak Asia and Daybreak Australia. Today, we are delighted to be joined by one of the most celebrated journalists to have covered Asia in recent memory, Anna Fifield. Anna was Beijing bureau chief for the Washington Post from 2018 to 2020, before which she covered Japan and the Korean Peninsula as the Post's Tokyo bureau chief from 2014 to 2018. Anna is an authority on North Korean society and politics, having visited the country a dozen times to report on both the Kim regime and the lives of ordinary people. In 2019, Anna published a biography of North Korea's leader entitled The Great Successor, The Divinely Perfect Destiny of Brilliant Comrade Kim Jong-un. Thanks, Sherry. Anna, thank you for joining us. It's terrific to have you. Maybe let's start with Kim Jong-un and North Korea, just because you have this book out, you've spent so much time invested in studying the country, the current leader, Kim Jong-un, having visited a dozen times or more. I thought I'd first ask you just your, your current take on the North Korean leader, Kim Jong-un, as the administration here in the United States has transitioned. There's been a bit more focus on North Korea's strategy as a key aspect of the Biden administration's foreign policy. How do you think about how Kim Jong-un has watched this transition unfold after four years of Donald Trump as president? Yeah, thank you, Rickson and Sherry. You know, I think it's really difficult to say at the moment because ordinarily the change of an American president is kind of the biggest factor facing the North Korean leader. And certainly towards the end of the Trump administration, the North Korean regime was very interested and invested in the American election and watching what was going to happen there. Uh, Of course, there was all the summitry and diplomacy with Donald Trump um, and I actually discovered in the course of reporting my book that the North Koreans had consulted a fortune teller to find out whether Donald Trump would be re-elected because they were so keen for him to be re-elected. Um, the fortune teller told them that, yes, he would, so uh, they got that wrong. Um, but, you know, I really think Kim Jong-un wanted the Trump administration to continue because they'd figured out how to how to deal with him, how to play President Trump, how to appeal to him and to get something without giving anything in return. So the fact that the administration changed to the Biden administration and almost certainly back to a more traditional Mm -hmm. form of diplomacy, you know, that should have been very confronting for the Kim regime. But for the fact that this coronavirus uh, 
pandemic had struck the world and probably struck North Korea as well. And that has been something that's really overshadowed everything else for North Korea. Uh, North Korea closed its borders to China even before Wuhan closed down on the 23rd of January last year. So they have been isolated from the rest of the world in a way they have never been before. They have voluntarily isolated themselves. And so this has caused, I think, so much stress inside the system. You know, they are not able to trade uh, with China and send people and goods back and forth in the same way that they have. And so this is causing an economic crisis, I think, inside of North Korea. And so this is by far the predominant concern for Kim Jong-un and the regime at the moment and something that is overshadowing any, any kind of thoughts about talks with Biden or the administration or diplomacy or anything like that, because I think they probably are in survival mode right now. I was just going to say, because we have seen North Korea under so much pressure in the past as well, right? And it has survived for this long, including the third generation leader of the same family that I've heard you mention in the past in other interviews that that has surprised you as well, that it surprised that people would be willing to accept another leader from the same family. How is it that that leadership can have that longevity, yeah, so I mean, that's the whole reason I wanted to write my book, because I was so surprised that not only had Kim Jong-un managed to survive, but practically thriving there in Pyongyang with the way he'd managed to keep a hold on that regime and, and claim the legitimacy to lead it. You know, over the decades, all of that pressure had been external on them. It was the outside world led by the United States uh, most of the time seeking to impose sanctions on North Korea, to change North Korea's behavior through outside pressure. And that clearly had not worked uh, over the decades. Sanctions had not changed North Korea's behavior. Throughout all those years, they had still managed to get the money and the parts to develop a very credible nuclear and ballistic missile program. Kim Jong-un had managed to get uh, Rolls Royces and Mercedes Benz, mm-hmm. and they, despite all of these sanctions. So clearly it was not working. The difference now, I think, is that the constraints are being po- imposed from within, that Kim Jong-un and the regime has been so concerned about the coronavirus and a pandemic and what that would do inside North Korea, you know, where hospitals don't have electricity, let alone ventilators. So I think that what they've been doing over the past months and more than a year is deliberately shutting themselves off from the outside world. And so their usual kind of relief valves that they have to let off some of that pressure haven't been available to them. So I think that now he is under a lot of strain because he staked his legitimacy on um, improving life for the average North Korean. And over his first nine or so years, he was able to say, you know, you will never have to tighten your belts again. Things will get better under me. I mean, he didn't do that because he cared about the North Korean people. He did it because he wanted to say, you know, you know that life in China and life in South Korea is better than here. But under me, I, you know, I will uh, close that gap or at least stop that gap from getting bigger. So that's why he allowed the Jangmadang market, the entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. the whole, you know, this kind of, 
nascent private enterprise inside North Korea that allowed the economy to grow a little bit. And that was a big part of the way that Kim Jong-un managed to claim the right to leave North Korea. And now that's gone pretty much, I think, because that entrepreneurship, that trade, that back and forth across the border uh, is not happening. So, so that, yeah, really strikes at the heart of his claim to be leading North Korea to a higher standard of living. So, so Anna, where does Kim Jong-un go from here? Is it a hope that he can find vaccine from China as a way out? Is there an opportunity for leaders here in the United States or others? What is the path out, do you think, for Kim Jong-un? He makes all the decisions in North Korea. But, you know, confronted, as you say, with the kind of challenge that could fundamentally rip apart his country, what does he do? Yeah, I think it's really, really difficult. I mean, the thing that he has in his favor is that the Chinese have been helping him. Uh, You know, from the get-go of this outbreak, China was sending PPE and other Mm -hmm. equipment. I think everybody realizes that if the pandemic did properly break out inside North Korea, it would be really devastating in that system. The healthcare system would definitely not be able to to deal with that. So, I mean, it's reasonable to assume that North Koreans could be vaccinated with Chinese vaccines. Uh, Whether those actually work or have proved to be as effective as some of the other ones is a whole other question, of course. But I think we can be reasonably sure that China will be helping North Korea and helping them to to survive this. I mean, what I've found really interesting in the past few days, obviously there's been um, a lot of speculation about Kim Jong-un's sudden weight loss. Mm -hmm. uh, And then we've been getting these statements, uh, the North Koreans' concern that he looks so emaciated. I mean, not emaciated by North Korean standards, that's for sure. Um, But the fact that it's being discussed publicly, uh, the leader's weight is being discussed publicly, and the fact that they've made it clear that something has gone wrong with the um, controls inside North Korea leads me to believe that that there has been some kind of new outbreak there and there could be something happening inside North Korea. But but it's so closed off at the moment. There are you know no Western diplomats in North Korea anymore. There are no aid workers going in and out. Uh, so our ability to get information from inside North Korea is even more constrained than usual at the moment. So you mentioned the role of China. Let me delve into that. Why is North Korea so important to China? Why has it been so important? And why have they had North Korea's back for this long? Yeah, uh, there is definitely no love lost between China and North Korea. The whole idea of lips and teeth is very, very outdated now. But but there's certainly no love lost whatsoever between Xi Jinping and Kim Jong-un. You know, Kim Jong-un, once he came into office, I guess, uh, he did not do any of the things that his grandfather and father had done. He did not go to Beijing and, you know, bow down at the emperor's feet and all these kinds of things that a little brother is expected to do of their patron in this um, kind of situation. Not only did he not respect China in the way that China is used to, but he actively sought to humiliate Xi Jinping, you know, firing missiles during the first Belt and Road Forum when Beijing was hosting or China was hosting the G20 in Hangzhou. You know, these were things that were deliberately meant to embarrass uh, the Chinese leadership. 
Uh, and so that, plus the execution of Jiang Songtek really early on in the, uh, and, you know, in 2013 and early on in Kim Jong-un's tenure, you know, and the severing of that link between North Korea and China set the tone for relations uh, in this era, the Xi Kim era. Then that hasn't changed despite all the diplomacy. You know, Xi Jinping, I think, came out and met Kim Jong-un because he didn't want to be left out of that democratic, uh, diplomatic process. But there's been no kind of detente really between them. So to this day, China has the same interest that it's always had, and that is just keeping North Korea stable. It does not want North Korea to collapse. It does not want the Korean Peninsula to be reunited or to fall under the auspices of, of the United States military and, you know, the United States sphere of influence. And so it has been, despite this lack of um, friendship between Kim Jong-un and Xi Jinping, it has been doing all of these usual things just to make sure that North Korea survives, remains stable, remains stable and does not collapse. I mean, I think that Xi Jinping in particular finds North Korea a very helpful tool uh, mm -hmm. in his diplomatic dealings with the United States. We really saw that during the trade war with the Trump administration, and it had become really clear that China had no interest in helping the U.S. on North Korea while this trade war was unfolding. Can I ask you, Anna, just listening to you talk about that, I'm reminded over the four years of the prior U.S. administration, we saw some unprecedented activity between the United States and North Korea. Two leader-level summits, which you know really had never happened before, and really no role uh, for China in this. So, so maybe just picking up on this and connecting it to these summits, I'd, I'd ask first your view and your assessment of how China viewed these developments between President Trump uh, and Kim Jong-un, and then perhaps we'll turn to sort of the summits themselves and your take on them. But first, sort of the Chinese view, the outlook from Beijing as these events over a few, you know, the time of uh, President Trump unfolded. Hmm. I think, you know, in the first instance, even before they got to diplomacy, I think China really had a rude awakening during 2018 there when Donald Trump was talking about fire and fury and little rocket man. And they were, as, as many capitals and governments around the world, really confused and not sure how seriously to take Donald Trump's threat. And so at that time, I think, you know, the only thing that is worse for China than instability in North Korea is war or military action in North Korea. So China uh, really strictly imposed sanctions during that period, much more than it had any time before, because it wanted to show the United States that sanctions could work, uh, mm -hmm. that, that this could be a deterrent and that there was no need for military action, fire and fury and whatever form that that might have taken. So, I mean, that was the background to it, I think, and that, that is a big part of the reason um, that also the North Korea took this so seriously. China was taking it all very seriously too. Um, but then when things suddenly pivoted and it was all diplomacy and detente between, the Kim and, and between Kim and Trump, I think China was also caught unawares by that, by the sudden change, as was Vice President Pence and Shinzo Abe. I remember being at the opening of the 
Olympic Games in Pyeongchang and watching the two of them, you know, mm-hmm. not 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 clapping, not standing and things and just being caught out by the sudden, the way the mood was shifting there. Um, but, yes, I think that, uh, that suddenly when it emerged that Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump were going to have a summit, China did not want to be left out of this process. It wanted to make sure that it had an influence over what was happening, over what North Korea was considering, what it was saying. And so that is why we saw Kim Jong-un suddenly realizing he did need to go to Beijing. He Mm -hmm. did need to meet Xi Jinping and talk to him and to follow the more traditional diplomatic pecking order, even in this very kind of unconventional diplomatic situation. Mm -hmm. I was at the Hanoi summit um, reporting about that meeting, but I remember that there was a lot of skepticism still in the air, given that there really hadn't been much progress in terms of actual denuclearization. Um, And there was a lot of criticism as well that you're giving a brutal regime sort of unwarranted legitimacy by continuing to meet with the North Korean dictator. What do you make of those summits? What was the takeaway? Yeah, um, I get that about giving him legitimacy. And certainly that's exactly what he wanted. You know, his brag book photo album was looking pretty good after all those meetings with yeah, Vladimir Putin, Moon Jae-in, everybody he met during the course of that year or so. But still, I actually thought it was a really good step uh, I was actually a little bit optimistic about it at the time. And I, I, of course, it's not traditional diplomacy. Of course, a summit should be the end result of the diplomatic process and reward uh, and things. But the reason I felt optimistic a little bit was because decades of the old way of mm-hmm. sanctions, of nuclear negotiations had not worked. They had not changed North Korea's calculations on any of this. And so the fact that the two countries had unconventional leaders, you know, Donald Trump was a very unconventional American president, but by the same token, Kim Jong-un is very different from his father. He is much more audacious um, and kind of outgoing, I guess, risk-taking than his father certainly ever was. Um, and so I thought that maybe there is an opportunity there for the two of them to break through whatever had been blocking progress for the previous few decades. I mean, obviously, I turned out, out to be wrong and that optimism was entirely misplaced. But I did think it was worth giving it a go and to test whether this could lead to something because, yeah, because what do we have to lose? The old way was not working. You know, you've written about the interests of Kim Jong-un fundamentally, what would it take? You're just sort of touching on it, but could you spell it out a little bit for us at its core from all of your research, all of the people you've talked to, trying to get inside the mind of Kim Jong-un, understand the objectives, what is it that he fundamentally is looking for out of a lasting, comprehensive agreement with the United States? This is all about him staying in power and his family staying in power in North Korea. This is his single motivating factor. And everything he does 
is geared around this. So the summits with the United States were about some kind of economic aid improvement, you know, a peace treaty, the end of the Korean War, the removal of troops from the southern half of the peninsula, the reduction of that threat towards him. I mean, the things that he has done internally, like allowing private markets to grow and flourish, is not about his tender loving care for the North Korean people. It's about him being able to say, your standard of living has improved because of me. You know, never mind that it's all by their own hard work uh, and their own entrepreneurship that they've done that. By the same token, the nuclear program was about, is about him both developing this very credible deterrent to stave off any kind of American action, but also about generating some national pride within North Korea. And I think this is often overlooked, the fact that it it is a real source of pride amongst North Korean people. You know, North Korean people know now, like putting like every defector that I have interviewed has watched a South Korean drama or an, a Chinese action film and things. They know that the outside world is a richer and freer place. Um, and so they know that North Korea is backwards at so many things. And it's a real source of pride that they have been able to be um, at the forefront of something very difficult. And especially that they managed to develop a nuclear weapon when Japan and South Korea have not. That they are ahead of their two rivals in this in this sphere. And that's I mean it really stuck with me that there was a, a university student, he was um studying science inside North Korea and he escaped because he was so disaffected with this regime, so disgusted with it. But he told me about the time that he learned in his physics class about nuclear fission and technology and this kind of stuff that he had learned and feeling so proud that he his country had managed to do this. So I think, you know, that's a motivating factor on that front too. And so so really everything that Kim Jong-un is doing, whether it's economic, diplomatic, nuclear, the riding the white horses on Mount Pekdu, that is about reminding people of his grandfather who is still revered in North Korea to this day. You know, so everything is around this and keeping his family and the kleptocracy around him in power. I really want to hear more about those stories that you've heard from North Korean defectors, but just to delve into Kim Jong-un's character a little bit more. When he came to power, I remember that there was a lot of speculation that perhaps he's not really going to be able to curb the generals that have been in power for so long, that he was going to be a puppet for his uncle, uh, Chang Song-tek, back then. Mm-hmm. But then Chang Song-tek is gone. His half-brother, Kim Jong-nam, is gone. How ruthless of a dictator and how of a, uh, of a strategist is he? Yeah, breathtakingly ruthless. I mean, when we look at the people who walked around the hearse at his father's funeral, they're pretty much all gone now. So Ri Yong-ho, the military chief. Um, the Kim Jong-nam, the head of the propaganda unit, Jung Song-tek, the uncle, he very shrewdly and uh, strategically used their institutional knowledge for his own benefit. And once he was done with them, once they had served their purpose, and instead of being helpful, just became pure threat, 
he's dispatched with them one by one, you know, whether they have been re relegated to political prisons or house arrest or in the case of Jung Song Pek, dragged out of a Politburo meeting and shot in front of a crowd of other officials. You know, he has systematically made sure to get rid of anybody who could rival him for power. And I think the uncle, Jung Song Pek, was particularly threatening to Kim Jong-un because he was such a mercurial character. He did have such strong links with China. He knew where the money was. He did have his own kind of factions. And so for Kim Jong-un, once he'd served his purpose, his utility was gone, he was nothing but threat. And I think that's the same um, the same with Kim Jong-nam, even though Kim Jong-nam showed no interest in taking over the leadership of North Korea, you know, he also had that mystical pectu blood flowing through his veins and so could therefore rival uh, Kim Jong-un as the legitimate leader of North Korea, theoretically. So Kim Jong-un had him dispatched too. And that's not only about getting rid of a rival, it's also about sending a message to everybody else that nobody is safe in Kim Jong-un's regime, right? That this is a guy who is willing to have his own uncle and his own half-brother killed and in his, uh, you know, Kim Jong-un's case in a very brutal way, mm -hmm. painful way. Um, and that sends a powerful message to anybody, you know, anywhere to say, you know, I can get you and it's going to hurt. Anna, you mentioned at the top of our episode here the extensive travel you've done into North Korea and Sherry just mentioned it as well. I would like to hear a story or two that has that have stayed with you through the years. The 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 ones that have either been searing or shocking, striking. You've written about how mm -hmm. every aspect of a visit to North Korea is controlled. Mm -hmm. That nothing everything is is staged. But I wonder if, if you have a memory or two of the glimmer of the hint or something that's stuck with you that can just give us a more tactile sense of, of your experience of traveling as you have in and around North Korea. Yeah, um, it's tricky because obviously I think as a reporter, it's really important to go to North Korea and to see it with my own eyes and you can get little glimmers and insights, even in that highly choreographed environment. Um, and I did try to go as much as I could. Uh, and I did see changes over the 11 years that I was visiting North Korea. But weirdly, you know, or maybe not weirdly, the, the most fearing insight mm. came from people I'd met outside. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, all of the people who had escaped from the system who I met in China, in Laos, in Thailand. You know, I met families who'd left North Korea 11 days before and things when I, I'd meet them in, uh, on the border of Laos or Thailand or wherever they'd crossed uh, and hearing their stories. I think the stories never get any easier, no matter how many people I've heard say similar things about North Korea, just the kind of level of deprivation. Um, yeah, the... the I mean, I guess the thing that sticks with me is, and that I thought about quite a lot, is being a parent myself. It's like, how do you be a parent in North Korea? How do you protect your child in that system? You know, in the, you know, you need them to grow up uh, and to be safe and to be able to not step out of line in a system that's very brutal towards people who step out of line. 
but also I would be wanting to let them know that it wasn't um, it wasn't real, I guess. Uh, so it's a very tricky thing to balance. I think the thing that really stuck with me from going into North Korea, of course I knew it's very poor, very deprived. Even in Pyongyang, you know, you see people, really long lines of people waiting for buses that never come and, you know, people walking with huge sacks on their backs. Um, you know, even in Pyongyang, or Pyonghattan, as it's sometimes called because it has flourished so much under Kim Jong-un, there are still people there who need to, you know, the, who are cleaning the toilets in the foreign ministry or whatever. They're not all like government apparatchiks at the top level. But the thing that really stuck with me is the kind of the fear that's very palpable in being a foreigner walking around there and trying to just make eye contact even with people and that they are just terrified of any kind of encounter with foreigners and the political danger that that might put them in. And so on my first trip to North Korea in 2005, I, uh, I had some North Korean won. And at that time, you know, foreigners were supposed to use dollars. They weren't supposed to have local currency. But I had some that, um, that, a, that an aid worker had given me. And I said to my guide, you know, my minder, can I go for a little walk? And he said, yes, but don't go too far. I mean, it's kind of surprising he let me do that. But I did. I walked around the streets from the Koryo Hotel and there was a kiosk. And in the window of the kiosk was a North Korean English dictionary. And I was like, wow. And so I went up to the kiosk and I um, I said in Korean how much of that dictionary and got out my North Korean one. And the woman was just terrified. You know, and it caused a real scene. All these people gathered around. You know, I ended up getting chased back to the hotel and things. And this just it really hammered home to me. All I did was put that woman in danger. Uh, she, I'm sure, had to go through some kind of self-criticism session or she would have been hauled in to ask what she talked to me about and things like that. And so it's very strange as a reporter, but basically from then on, I, I tried not to talk to people. I didn't try to talk to people in North Korea because I knew all I would do was endanger them and that I wouldn't actually get anything useful out of them. And nobody's ever going to confess to me that they don't believe in Kim Jong-un, right? So all of that really insightful reporting about how North Koreans think and survive all came from outside of North Korea. That to me is so fascinating because I remember covering North Korean issues over a decade ago, and I covered the six-party nuclear talks, the last two before they completely disappeared. But I remember hearing these stories from uh, South Korean diplomats who had interacted with North Korean officials and how it was a whole different story there where once they are sort of in an informal setting, South Korean diplomats would tell me that, you know, they would be asked, you know, oh, you're wearing a nice watch or something. And that would be sort of a signal that they would want that watch. But that was um, some of the stories that I heard just from the official level, I guess. But to hear about that fear in just ordinary citizens living in North Korea is really, really shocking. So when you look at North Korea, a lot of the concerns about these um, humanitarian aid packages going into the country that uh, they end up being given to the military instead, that um, they end up enriching uh, those people that they shouldn't instead of really going to the people. How do you build 
protections around that. How can you interact with North Korea, try to help, but also at the same time know that a lot of that could end up in the pockets of, of the leadership? Yeah, that's a really tricky one. I mean, I think that bags of rice that are coming from the World Food Programme don't end up with the leadership. You know, the leadership has its own supplies and things. But, um, the yes, I, I take the point that it could be going to other people at the top and being given to military and things. I think, you know, in many ways, the military are people too. You know, the North Korea's army is 5 million people strong and they I've seen a lot of truly emaciated soldiers around the place. And so I think that it's, I think we should still be doing everything we can to try to help the North Korean people. And that some of that aid does get to the people who need it, to ordinary people. You know, the WSP agencies do have some ability to monitor where it goes, some ability, not entire. But also if it does go to those lower level soldiers and things like that, that, that is maybe still beneficial for, you know, for them and for their families who are, in many ways, ordinary North Koreans just also trying to get ahead. So I guess in that sort of vein of thought, going back to the foreign policy side of things, you mentioned earlier that really the old way wasn't working, right? What would there have been to lose in these summits between President Trump and then Kim Jong-un? So what would be the way forward here? Because we have this new North Korea policy review by the Biden administration. What does a way forward look like for you that has covered this for years and still there really isn't much of a change in the dynamics between North Korea and other nations? Yeah, I mean, I think that this North Korean regime has survived for more than seven decades by isolating itself from the outside world, by cutting itself off, by telling the people that America's out to get them and, you know, striking fear into the hearts of the North Korean people in this way. And so I think we should not be doing anything to help the regime continue to isolate the North Korean people, whether that is information or food or other, you know, access to the outside world. So, yeah, maybe maybe 50% of the food aid goes to the army, but 50% goes to the ordinary people, right? Like it doesn't have to be total. It's not a zero-sum game. Uh, but also I think like in terms of the nuclear talks and things like that, that that is an extremely difficult issue and that it, it would be a good idea to start with something easier. <laughs> um, and so things like I, I went with the New York Philharmonic to Pyongyang in 2008. Um, and obviously that didn't lead anywhere either. Things were already falling to pieces at that time, though I, I wasn't aware of it on that trip. But even, you know, to be in that, East Pyongyang Theatre, and to see, you know, I was surrounded by all these North Koreans, yes, handpicked by the regime, but to see the realisation on their faces and to hear the Twitter amongst them when they realised that the New York Philharmonic was playing Arirang to them, it was amazing. And, and Arirang so is the I, national song, right, just for our listeners. Yeah. Yes. Yes, that's right. The song of the North Korea and South Korea, the sorrow of separation, you know, very beautiful song, really, you know, heartrending for all Koreans. Um, and so to hear, you know, the enemy 
playing their song like this, it just felt like a real shivers down your spine kind of moment. So um, obviously something like this is not going to like solve the whole North Korean nuclear crisis. But I wonder if there are ways to build bridges and to generate trust and confidence and show the, you know, what the things we share uh, together in that way. And so I think things like, yes, sports, exchanges yeah the olympics all these kinds of things we should be doing more and more and more of this the problem of course is that we don't know what north korea tells all its athletes and tells all the people in the audience to try the you know the propaganda that goes along behind the scenes with that but i think exposing them to the outside world as much as possible could be really beneficial to ordinary north korean people and that hopefully would pave um, the groundwork for more substantive discussions on more difficult issues. Anna, we've spent most of our time kind of delving into North Korea a bit in the, the regional dynamics, but I, I wanted also to expand a little bit before heading down to Wellington. As I mentioned at the top, you were in Beijing uh, from 2018 to 2020. And, you know, Right now, we're crossing over the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party uh, with the current Chinese President Xi very firmly in control. I'd love to hear your perspectives on the outlook of President Xi, given the, the anniversary. Um, you know, he will lay out some elements of his, his vision and, and, and how you think about similar to my question about Kim Jong-un on the North Korea side, what are President Xi's core priorities and objectives now? Yeah, so I arrived in Beijing having been immersed in writing this book about Kim Jong-un and thinking about him way too much. And just thinking to myself, you know, China is not North Korea. I cannot look at China through a North yes. Korean lens and trying really hard not to do that. But boy, it was difficult. And China made it more and more difficult, you know, to see on National Day, you know, the tanks rolling through Tiananmen Square and things and all the portraits of Xi Jinping everywhere. You know, it's like, where am I? And I, I arrived in Beijing as a believer, as I just explained, in, in engagement and contact between people and things. And I left feeling actually really pessimistic about the future for China because of the way that Xi Jinping has managed to close the space in China, the space for freedom of expression and thought and religion and pretty much anything. And the way he's managed to silence journalists and human rights advocates and lawyers and officials and anybody who dares question him. So there are so many similarities between the way that China is going. I mean, China, I guess, is going back to Mao Zedong era rather than towards North Korea. Maybe they're the same thing. But I feel pretty pessimistic about the possibility for change in China because I don't see how it's going to happen. Xi Jinping has such a tight grip on the Communist Party. And it really is a party. It's bigger than one man, but he's managed to get rid of his detractors and stack the party with his supporters. You know, he's used that anti-corruption campaign very, very 
skillfully to get rid of uh, anybody who's not on the same song sheet as him. Um, and so I don't see where the challenge to him would come and I don't see where the impetus would come for him to ease up on political freedoms uh, whatsoever. You know, they've developed this entirely separate internet, you know, their own Facebook, WhatsApp, YouTube, Twitter, TikTok, it's Chinese, OEM and things. So um, so I just don't see how things change or get better with, with China for the Chinese people inside there. And he's managed to strike fear into many countries around the world as well as running afoul of him. And as we've seen the retribution in Canada and Australia recently in, in this trade war that's been going on. And that's something that here in New Zealand, people are really worried about, about that, you know, this is uh, New Zealand's biggest relationship. Fully one third of New Zealand's exports go to China. And so they're really worried about how far they can go to stand up for New Zealand values without suffering the same kind of retribution that Australia and Canada and, and the US have suffered. The Pew Research Center just released another survey showing that the negative views of China are at near record highs. Here in the US, it's what about 76% of those surveyed holding negative views, but most countries, uh, many countries in Asia, especially with those with disputes with China, like Australia, uh, 77%, uh, Japan as well, 88%, uh, South Korea, 77% negative views. Can outside pressure on China, whether it's from the US, Australia, those so-called democratically minded um, allies, bring change to China? First of all, I think in these kinds of situations, it's really important to differentiate between China and the Chinese Communist Party. And really everything we're talking about here is the Chinese Communist Party, right? It's not 1.4 billion people. I don't think that we in the outside you know, liberal democratic world can have any impact on a world, much impact. You know, China may change the way it explains things and we've seen them calibrate the way they frame the Belt and Road uh, in response to you know criticism about it creating debt traps for impoverished countries and things like that but it has not made them change the way they do it. Um, the same with Xinjiang and the prison camps for Uyghur Muslims there you know this has they, have, they are talking, they've changed the way they've talked about it, but it has not stopped the practice of cultural genocide that has been taking place in Xinjiang. I think that China, Xi Jinping, the Communist Party, has already factored in our response to this. You know, when they look at Hong Kong, they know that there will be concern, there will be very angry statements, there will be efforts to try to stop them. But they have clearly decided that the benefits to them from taking control of Hong Kong in this way outweigh any potential negatives from that. So I think that they are looking at this bigger picture and trying to influence certain uh, areas of the international community. If we look at the Xinjiang situation, they've been expending a lot of effort in the Muslim world and there's been pretty much zero criticism from the Muslim world on this. So they're picking their battles and just carrying on with what they want to do regardless. I have to say, Anna, that I mean, listening to you and your, your outlook and assessment, my reaction is to feel like the outlook 
certainly as, as, as an American, you know, former government official, but the outlook feels bleak with China. It looks very difficult for us where yeah. it really is. You know, we've talked about this with um, other guests, you know, a relationship that is framed and reflective far more of, of disagreement, of competition, rivalry, of adversaries, of differences. But I wonder if there are ways that you would say, well, you know, think about, think about this, Rex, and, you know, as a balance, but do you, do you agree with that reaction? No, I agree with that reaction. Like I, I want to find something to be optimistic about, right, or to not feel hawkish about, but I, I can't see what that is. And, and sitting here in New Zealand, I mean, New Zealand has been quite slow in its um, journey on how it views China uh, and until very recently had been viewing this as entirely a mercantile relationship and trying to avoid the kind of doubters that the US, Canada, UK, Australia, the other Five Eyes partners have gotten into. But I think increasingly there is this realisation that China's going to do what China's going to do, and we have very little influence over that. So the right thing to do is to stand up for our values as well as our interests, I guess. But but so now in New Zealand, and we've had Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern talk much more about our values uh, as New Zealanders. So in the outside world, I guess that's all we can do in many ways is to, to know that we to look back and to try to stand up for what we believe is right because I think that there's so little prospects for changing China's behaviour there. Even saying those words, I wish they weren't true, but I but I can't see a way, another way around it. And I feel like we could um, extend this for another 45 minutes and and uh, maybe we'll, we'll be able to do a, a part two with you at some point in the future to explore this and other topics from your just incredible background and knowledge um, across the region. But I do want to thank you very much for joining us today. It's been fascinating to hear your insights and very grateful for it. Well, thank you so much. I've been a listener from the very, from the get-go with this podcast, so I'm really delighted and honored to be on here. Anna, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to also our listeners. Please be sure to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also access the full video of our conversation at theasiagroup.com. We'll see you next time on Tea Leaves. <laughs>